whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from, the heaven, from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they, be, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat, meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. The word of the Lord. Our psalm today will be from Psalm 78, 14 through 26. Sorry, 13 through 26. Uh, marvelous things he did in the sight of our forefathers in the land of Egypt, even in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them go through. He made the waters to stand in a heap. In the daytime he led them with a cloud, and all the night through with a light of fire. He split the hard rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance, as out of the great deep. He brought waters out of the stony rock so that it gushed out like the rivers. Yet for all this, they sinned more against him and provoked the Most High in the wilderness. They tested God in their hearts and demanded food for their craving. They spoke against God, saying, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Indeed, he smote the stony rock so that water gushed out and the steam stream overflowed. But can he give bread also or provide meat for his people? When the Lord heard this, he was full of wrath. So a fire was kindled against Jacob. And there flared up fierce anger against Israel. Because they did not believe in God and did not put their trust in his help. So he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors from heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. So mortals ate the bread of angels, for he sent them food enough. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our New Testament reading today will be in 1 Corinthians verse 10, sorry, chapter 10, verse 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. We need one of these in Kieseltown if for no other reason than the font size. <clears throat> so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, why did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do that we be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him, in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him and me shall never thirst. <clears throat> the Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. My daughter just said, Daddy, that was the shortest sermon ever. <laughs> None of y'all are that lucky. <laughs> Again, we're so grateful to be here with you all and to see old friends, um, uh, truly. But we, we bring, bring greetings from Church of the Lamb, and we're so happy to be here with you all. I think my mic and that mic are going to get along okay. Yeah? We'll all know if not. <laughs> all right, as a bit of context as we consider this text from John this morning, actually, one, one thing before we get into that, I'm not going to preach to the psalm specifically, uh, but there is a band called Poor Bishop Hooper uh, who is singing their way through the Psalms, and their Psalm 78 is beautiful. So on the way home, pull up Spotify or whatever you use and just search for Poor Bishop Hooper and Psalm 78. So for context from this reading in John, I want to ask you a few questions that, that I ask myself all the time. Why are you here? Why did you come to church this morning? Why is it that you follow Jesus? What is it that you're hoping for out of this deal? We all hope for things from God, a comfortable life, a livable income, health and safety for ourselves, our family, for peace, for eternal life in the good place. And these are all good things, but this text from John 6 forces us to face the topic honestly and head on, why do you come to Jesus? For perspective, this passage in John comes just after 
we have church out in the middle of nowhere. I'm used to motorcycles going by, but people walking by is alarming me. <laughs> so forgive me for continuing to glance over there. Um, so this passage in John comes just after Jesus feeds the 5,000 with two loaves and five fish. And then he walks on water. Most of this crowd probably didn't see that. Um, from verses 22 to 24, they had some inclination that another strange thing had happened uh, as Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Uh, but the feeding of the 5,000 had definitely gotten attention. Uh, the crowd chases Jesus down, but immediately he challenges their motivation for seeking him. So starting in verse 26, <clears throat> Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. <clears throat> so the problem here is that the crowd is missing the forest for the trees. In front of them, they have God incarnate who's teaching and performing miracles, but the crowd is there for the miracles at the price of missing the true God. They're like, we heard you got a wine trick. And he's saying, you're missing so much more that I can offer you. Don't get me wrong, food is very important, and we'll circle back to this food component in a moment, but on the grand scheme, the universal scale, food is perishable. What Christ truly is trying to offer here is eternal. N.T. Wright, who's written piles and piles of books, and I'm, I'm sure every Anglican in the United States has probably heard more of it than they want sometimes, he has a great story uh, along with this, this section of John 6, and he said it's like a person who's working on their Ph.D. in art history. So this guy works tirelessly researching artists and trends and theories. He goes to conferences, all the major galleries in Europe, scribbles down all the information off the plaques beneath all these works. He makes connections between painters and understands their motivations and influences, their styles, their peers, who they look up to. He writes his dissertation and gets his PhD. <clears throat> what he never did was sit quietly in front of these masterpieces and take them in for what they were. He never just sat there for the thing as it was intended. And this is sort of what Jesus is, is calling out uh, to, to the folks who have met him after the feeding. Jesus' call here exposes the primary problems of movements like the prosperity gospel. Uh, so those folks would tell you that if you believe right and you think right and you tithe right, God wants to give you good things and you'll have material success. You'll get good stuff. Here, Jesus makes clear that it isn't about what he can do for you at all, and certainly not in the short term. The miracle isn't the point. Fancy cars aren't the point. He has to be the point. God may very well give you material success, and that's great. He may give you professional success. That's fantastic. If you end up just adoring the cars and the job and the boat and the things, you've still missed the entire point. A converse problem with this prosperity theology type idea is that they have no answer for the person who suffers. God is still God and he still loves and provides for you and will ultimately restore you even when things are terrible. 
If you're battling a chronic illness, I truly pray that God will heal you, and he very well may. But even with stakes such as health and life and death, that healing is still not what you ultimately need, not what you primarily need. You need to receive Jesus for Jesus' sake, not for an earthly reward. And even in your suffering and pain, he will change you and change your life and your experience of that pain. He meets you there. If you've ever watched a faithful Christian suffer or die in these circumstances, you can tell the difference. This is not to say that Christians don't struggle or get sad or anxious or frustrated, but what you see at the core, even in weakness and pain and strife, is a joy and a peace and a confidence that only makes sense if you know the Creator and know the true end. That person has the bread of life, and they shall not hunger and shall never thirst. <clears throat> so, I'll ask for a little bit of grace from you. We're going to take a little bit of a sidetrack here from John 6. This is what my kids call a long cut when we're in the car, the opposite of a shortcut. Um, so I, 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 re I wrote this sermon and preached it about three weeks ago at Church of the Lamb. So in the meantime, I picked up this little book from a, a lady named Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Christianity, 12, uh, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. So as the title sort of teases out, she just addresses questions that we frequently get from folks outside the church and frequently questions that we're asking ourselves. So are, aren't we better off without religion is one of the, the chapters. Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? This is apologetics, by the way. She's on our side. <laughs> Don't start throwing things just yet. You can throw things later if you want. Um, how can you take the Bible literally? So these are the chapters that she goes through. Her chapter on suffering, I think, is the best one here. Um, you know, again, lots of things have been written about suffering in the context of where my mind was writing this sermon. This struck me particularly, so I'm just going to read a little part of it, and I'm going to get away from that lectern for a minute. <clears throat> so she uses Lazarus to, to teach through this and talk through this. Can you all still hear me all right? It's different being close to that speaker and hearing your own voice in your left ear. Um, so she talks about Lazarus. So Lazarus, for those of you who are, I'm sure most of you are familiar with that story, Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. They're all friends of Jesus. Lazarus gets sick. The sisters send word to Jesus, who was out of town at that time. He received the word, but didn't immediately come back. He didn't come back for a few days later. By the time he'd come back, Lazarus was dead. He mourns with the sisters and with the other friends who were there. <clears throat> One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in this story. That verse is two words long. Jesus wept. So it's part, and that's a whole other sermon that I've preached before, and we'll, we'll give you all a pass on today. But that's the context of what she's talking about here. So he ends up calling Lazarus out of the tomb, which is the miracle of this whole thing. But for her, it's sort of the, the time in between him finding out that Lazarus is sick and calling him out of the tomb that she wants to speak to. So this, that's the context for this. Whose kids are those? <clears throat> all right. But what fascinates me about this story is how little focus there is on Lazarus himself. Rather, the narrative draws our gaze to profound questions. Why, if Jesus planned to heal Lazarus, did he not just do it in the first place? Why did he let Lazarus die and leave Mary and Martha mourning for days? Why not tell Martha what he was planning to do right away? Let her off the hook. 
In this strange stretching of the story, we get a glimpse of the whole biblical framework for suffering, the space between Lazarus's death and Jesus calling him out of the tomb is the space in which Martha sees Jesus for who he really is, her very life. Not Lazarus's very life, by the way. This was her experience with Jesus. Lazarus's turns out to be similar, just in a different way. Jesus is not a means to an end, a mechanism through which Martha can change her circumstances. He is the end. Her circumstances drive her to him. It's not that her suffering or our suffering don't matter. It matters enough to bring tears to the eyes of the Son of God. But it matters like a first meeting matters to a marriage, or like birth, or like birth matters to motherhood. It is an entry point to a relationship, a relationship formed through suffering as much as through joy. If Jesus claims the goal of our existence is relationship with him, finding him in the suffering is the point. Forgive me for the sidetrack, but she did a better job of it than I did, so I wanted to make one more little loop around that, that commentary on the suffering aspect of this passage. <clears throat> Back to our original gospel reading from John 6. So the other component of this passage, a sort of aside from what we've been talking about, is referencing bread back to the Exodus. So in John 6, they've been fed by Jesus, and he tells them, don't worry about the food, you just believe in me. Naturally, these folks are just as obtuse as we are, and they say, what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So in Exodus, the Old Testament reading that you heard this morning, the people have been rescued from slavery in Egypt, but it's a really long walk, and they grumble because that's what we do. They say, we could have just stayed in Egypt and at least have food to eat. So God gives them this bread from heaven called manna for 40 years. This is an important story, and it illustrates a few things for us. One is God's provision for his people. Earlier I said that bread can't hold a light to Jesus, which is true, but practically speaking, we still need God's provision in our daily lives. We pray this in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. So from the material standpoint, God provides for us in many ways and reminds us here of our reliance on him for all things. This isn't just about human weakness, it's about the favor that we have with God. He created all things. He provides for us out of love, and our response should be great gratitude and praise. In the John 6 passage, Jesus reminds the crowd where that manna came from at Exodus. Not just Moses, but from the Father in heaven, who is also sending now this new bread of life. In this illustration and in the Lord's Prayer, we also know that we need spiritual nourishment both in our daily walk with Jesus and through the sacrament of Eucharist. We'll come to the table here shortly, and in the institution of this feast, Jesus describes the bread as his body broken, the bread of heaven. That's what I'll say to each of you who come forward in a few minutes. The last thing I want to point out is an interesting connection between manna and just a neat example of how interconnected and incredible and rich the Bible is. <clears throat> The Old Testament reading this morning from Exodus is the best contextual view of the manna event, 
and it's in the lectionary, so I just left it there. Uh, it gives us sort of the best historical perspective for what happened. But Numbers 11 also takes a look at this same event. And you don't need to go there because I'm going to pull you into Exodus here in a minute. So Numbers 11 takes a glance at Moses and his people and the Exodus story. And in verse 7 of Numbers 11, we see a physical description of the manna. Verse 7, now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of delium. Delium is a super weird word. B-D-E-L-L-I-U-M. The first time I preached this sermon, I called it bedellium. Some children in the congregation corrected me <laughs> that the B is entirely silent, and it is delium. So delium is a sticky substance. It's like a gum or a resin. It's similar to myrrh. So here's the thing. In the entirety of my Bible, this one's 1,800 pages long, the word delium is used twice. Lots of breads, lots of bloods, lots of these other contextualizations. Delium is used two times. The other one is in Genesis 2. So if you have your Bible, you can turn it to Genesis 2. The more I read and study Genesis, the more I realize the incredible depth and richness in that first book of the Bible. In so many ways, the whole of the Bible is rooted right there in Genesis. There are not any throwaway words in, in Genesis, particularly not in the first handful of chapters. So to give us context for where we are, the first time this word comes up. So Genesis 1, God speaks the universe into being. God said, let there be light, there was light, God saw that the light was good, so on and so forth. He speaks the creation into being, including uh, humanity. In the beginning of Genesis 2, God rests on the seventh day. The author takes a second look at the creation of man and woman, sort of from a different lens, and then God plants the Garden of Eden. That's where we're at. It's page 3 in my Bible. Genesis 2, starting in verse 10 a river flowed out of Eden, God bless you, to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. Again, all of the Bible, that word's used twice, here and in Numbers describing the manna. I cannot imagine that it's by accident. In Numbers, we recount the Exodus story and the way that God provides manna for his people in the desert, delivering the very sustenance that they couldn't provide for themselves. And this strange word that is used to describe the bread points us straight back to the beginning as one of the good things appearing in the world before the fall, back toward Eden. So it's sort of Eden bread. For us as Christians, we know that one day Jesus will return and heaven and earth will be combined back together in the new creation, and our preview of that place is Eden. That's our template for understanding where humans and God are connected to one another as it was intended. So in this way, through Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and here in John, we see God's desire to provide for his people in a tangible way with bread for the here and now but more importantly, to provide for us eternally as it was always meant to be. And that's what Jesus is describing in chapter 6 of John. 
So for us, the work that he gives us to do in this passage is clear. The work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. Seek him, study him, pray to him, believe in him. There is nothing you can hope for tangibly that will compare with what he's already done for you and what he will do for you eternally. But the point must be him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.